all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12. You know, there are all sorts of people that do not believe in an afterlife. They believe what? This life is all there is. There's no heaven. There certainly is no hell, the idea that God's going to bring judgment. None of that. There's no life after death, no resurrection from the dead. What you see is what you get and what you make of this life. That's all there is to it. And there's a lot of people that think that way. And that myopic mindset was especially true of the people that we're going to encounter today. These are Jewish leaders. They are part of a group that is seeking to trip Jesus up, to trick him, to get the people to stop showing reverence to him, stop hanging on his every word. They want to discredit him. People are calling him the son of David, calling Jesus even the Messiah, and they got to put an end to it because Jesus is completely disrupting their religion where they're at the heart and the center. And so through a series of questions, Jesus is interfacing on the Temple Mount. This is on the Wednesday right before the Friday in which Jesus goes to the cross. And although the others had been unsuccessful and they had really good questions, the group we're going to meet today, these Sadducees, they believe they've got a question that cannot be answered. It's one that indeed Jesus will fail to respond correctly because there are, is no response and they'll be able to completely turn the masses away from Jesus and back onto themselves. And so they're really, they've got a question. But the real question they've got is, is there life after death? Let's take a look. Here they are. Verse 18, now some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him. Now, the Sadducees, they are the leading group among the Jews. All of the chief priests, the high priests, all come from this group called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were pretty unique. Unlike most of Israel, they didn't believe in a national resurrection, nor did they really believe in a personal resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in the supernatural altogether. They didn't believe in angels, demons, no supernatural activity. They certainly didn't see God as sovereign. They only held to the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the, the law of Moses. They rejected all of the traditions of the Pharisees. They dismissed them completely. And yet they held the top spots. They were wealthy, aristocratic, they really wanted to accommodate Rome since Rome was dominating Israel. And they have a question. And notice it says right there in verse 18, who say there is no resurrection. You might remember the Sadducees this way. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the supernatural. You can always remember that that's where they are. They were kind of very much like the deist of the 18th century that completely believe in that there's no God who is doing any supernatural work. There, is no, there are no angels, there's no afterlife, and that's where they are. They are political, they're in power, and they're out to get Jesus with a question they believe is unanswerable. Take a look as they set this up here. Verse 19, they use the ploy of flattery, and we've seen this before. Okay, they're, they're trying to set Jesus up. They refer to him as, verse 19, teacher. 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And you're like, whoa, is that in the Bible? Yeah, it is. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And this would be very familiar. It is referred to as the leveret marriage. It comes from the Latin levir, or it means brother-in-law. In Hebrew, it is yaboom. And this was the common practice. In fact, it even predates the law of Moses. You can find this in Genesis chapter 38, where you've got Onan, and, and this actual scenario plays out. The most famous leveret marriage, uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, you ever read the, the book of Ruth? Well, uh, you know that Boaz marries Elimelech's widowed uh, daughter-in-law, Ruth, and the whole story is built on this. And so this was very familiar. This was the practice. And the reason they did so uh, is this. If a man should die and he had no offspring, no son, then If he had a brother that was not married, that brother was required to marry that gal. Now, they would be husband and wife, and any offspring, and especially a son, would be the legal heir uh, in that line. It's as if that was his brother's son, and so that was the practice, and it was commonly known. And so now they're saying, you know, you know, Jesus, we've, we've got a, a, a question here for you. And they, and they read this from Deuteronomy 25. Everybody, the thousands that are gathered on the temple watching Jewish leaders trying to trip up Jesus, they're like, yeah, we're really familiar with this. There probably were some in the crowd that that was their experience. And they say, Jesus, you're the great teacher. <laughs> we got a little question for you. And here we go. They had stumped every single person. They don't believe in a resurrection. They're going to ask a question to prove just how foolish it is to believe in life after death. Look at verse 20. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, having no children. And the second one married her and died leaving behind no children, and the third likewise, you know? So there's seven brothers. You got to think, like, in this story, if you're like some of the next brothers, you're like, no, you're totally scared of this lady. Like, no, I'll marry her and I'll die. Why do these things happen to me? Like, I'm sure they're very afraid of her. And so they've got this story going on. And Well, verse 23, uh, verse 22, it says, "And, and so all seven left no children. And then last of all, finally... The woman died also. Verse 23. So Jesus, this is our question. In the resurrection, (laughs) when they rise again, which one's wife will she be for all seven had married her? And see, it it was common amongst the Jews in this time, apart from the Sadducees, that the idea of of eternal life of the resurrected life is that it would basically be like life like it is on this earth. It's just going to occur in heaven or in God's presence. And so that was the common understanding. Of, think, of course, the Sadducees think this is a huge joke. There's no such thing as life after death. In fact, their question, they believe, proves their point. 
And they're just saying like, okay, so she's married to all these boys. So in the resurrection, why, why whose wife will he, she actually belong to? Because Jesus, this is going to be one really awkward family reunion, huh? How's that going to work out? And the idea is like, it's a myth. There's no such thing as a resurrection. It's a panacea. This whole idea of heaven, presence of God eternally, that's just wishful thinking. That's for people who like realize that life is pretty tough at times. There's got to be something more than this. So we'll imagine there's a heaven. We'll imagine there's some eternal life that you live forever. But it's a big joke. And so everybody is just waiting to see, now how is Jesus going to respond to this? Because no one has ever had an answer for their dilemma. Well, look at verse 24. Jesus gives us the reasons for our convictions about life after death. Look what he says. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? I mean, did they really think like they were going to ask a question to Jesus? In light of all the wisdom and all that he'd done, the miracles and the accolades of being recognized as the Messiah, did they really think they were going to ask him a question where Jesus was going to like, ah, hmm, wow, you know, that is a really good question. I had never thought of that before. That's kind of what they were thinking, that they had actually had stumped Jesus, that there was no way that he could answer that. Jesus responds with a counter question, and he drives right to the heart of the matter. He knows this is really about, is there a real thought? Is there really life after death? And he says, you are greatly mistaken. You are in error. The term literally means you have deceived yourselves. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand what the word of God is really saying. In fact, You've put yourself in a place of judgment. You're kind of a higher criticism kind of person. You pick and choose what you want to follow in the Bible. Furthermore, you've rejected most of the Old Testament, and you don't even understand the five books of the Bible that you do hold to, or at least you say to. And furthermore, not only do you not understand the Scriptures, but you do not understand the power of God. You do not know the true meaning of Scripture, nor do you understand the power of God to overcome death, to give life. I mean, haven't you even read the book of Genesis, the very first book? You have God who created the heavens and the earth. He created humanity. I mean, think of it. The universe, massive, expansive, all things created by God, this earth, every single person. Just think of it at a micro level of all that's just flowing through your body and every single cell, every atom and how that all works We're talking tremendous power that we can't even comprehend. No way we could fathom it. And Jesus says, you don't understand the scriptures and you do not understand the power of God, the power that God has that he can give life to those who have died. And so he's going to go on to talk about the reality of life after death for those who are trusting in God. Look at verse 25. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. The first thing that Jesus tells us about the reality of life after death for those who are trusting in God is that they're going to have 
perfect relationships with each other. Now, take a look here because there is a lot of confusion on this issue. Verse 25, he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, angels. A lot of people think that angels are deceased humans that take then the form of an angel. And there's a lot of, of thinking and kind of folklore about angels. I went uh, one time at, in a store in Portland that was completely on angels, and it was just weird, okay? But this is kind of the idea, is that you die, and then you become an angel. Are you familiar with this? I mean, there's like um, a movie, I'm sure you saw it, You've got uh, Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, okay? And recognize that? And the idea is that Clarence has died, but he has to earn his wings because he's an angel, right? And, okay, I'm just going to give it away in case you haven't seen it. Uh, Clarence apparently earns his wings, and there's a little bell that rings, right? And everybody lives happily ever after. But I want you to know that that makes really good Hollywood. Yeah, you, you become an angel, and then you might even get some wings, But that's bad theology, okay? Good Hollywood, bad theology. You see, Jesus is saying you have an entirely new existence. You are going to be a perfect, in its perfect spiritual relationship with everyone else. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that you become an angel. You become like angels. You have no needs. You do not die. You are going to live forever. And the resurrection, what he's talking about here, that's not a restoration of just life as we know it here. It's a completely new way of life where you're going to have relationships that are far superior than the ones that we enjoy now. Now, when Jesus says this, that you're going to be like the angels, guess what else the Sadducees don't believe in? They don't even believe in angels. But this is, this is how it works, friends. Just because someone doesn't believe in something doesn't mean that it's not true. I mean, there's lots of people that think, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. Well, that's fine if you don't believe in it, but it doesn't change the reality that that exists. Same is true with angels. They don't believe in angels. Jesus said, you were sorely mistaken. And in fact, he says, they are like the angels. They're not, they're not given in marriage, okay? So there's not marriage contracts, nor are they given in marriage where like you have like a prearranged marriage, but they are like the angels. Now, you're going like, whoa, wait a second here. Like, if you're married and, and you really love your spouse, you're like, okay, wait a second here. That's kind of difficult news to come to terms with. Wait, I'm not going to, I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like an angel, but I'm not going to be married. I will tell you that your relationships will be far superior to what they are now. You will be most fully who you are in Christ. You will be the most lovable and have the ability and capacity to love even far superior than what you are able to do even today. We will be at our ultimate best, our most lovable And so, like, let's just talk about this. Like, what is even the purpose of marriage? Well, I just want to give you a few. First of all, we know that the purpose of marriage is to perfect and complete, right? Remember what God said? You know, it's not good for Adam to be alone. So what did he do? God created Eve, the perfect complement. And he put them together to perfect, meaning to mature and to complete. 
And that's what marriage does. I mean, you've got like perhaps a lot of rough edges, a lot of growth needed. At least that's the category I'm in. Probably one of the best ways that God really brings about growth and sanctification and development, he does it through marriage. But let me give you another purpose for marriage, and that is personal companionship. So let me ask you, so if, if marriage is to perfect and complete, are we going to be incomplete in heaven? Are, is there something that we're going to be missing? Absolutely not. We're going to be completely perfect. There are going to be no gaps to fill. And when it comes to personal companionship, are we going to be like missing out and uh, having lots of relationship failure? Are there going to be lack of relationship in heaven? Absolutely not. We're going to be perfect. We're going to relate well to e- with each other. So then what is another purpose of marriage? It's procreation. To populate the earth and the kingdom of heaven. But in the kingdom of heaven, in eternity, are there more people added to the kingdom in eternity? No, that takes place all on earth. And let me give you one other purpose of marriage. And that is that in marriage is to portray God's covenant relationship between Christ and his bride. Did you know that? If you're married, your marriage is to be a reflection of the love that Christ has for his church and the church has for Christ. That's how it works. Like, for instance, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if you're a husband, what, is, what are you to do? You're to reflect the gospel, to love your wife and to serve her, to, like it says there, to actually lay your life down for her. If you want a good marriage, this, this is your verse. If, you, if you're like, I'm not really familiar with that, first of all, it's really showing up in your marriage. Second of all, if you will make this your memory verse and really apply it, your marriage is going to increase in terms of growth, joy, satisfaction exponentially because this is how it's designed. And wives, they are to yield to the leadership of their husbands. There's a compliment. There's a coming together. And when that happens, you know what happens? Christ's gospel is presented to a watching world. And we give a picture of Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. So like my marriage to Karina, it's far from perfect because Karina's married to me, okay? But it is to be a picture of the gospel. It is to portray the love of Christ for the church and the church for Christ. And are there weddings in the kingdom of heaven? What do you think? Answer? Yes. One. And it's Christ and his bride. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you've got the bride of Christ clothed with the bright linen, linen of righteousness. Everything you do in God's power for his glory, every small even cup of water that you give to the glory of God, every act of service, every act of selflessness, honoring Christ, you know what happens? It's, it's like the brilliance and the radiance of the bride. And that is the one marriage that is celebrated. And so when you look at it, the reality of life after death for those who believe in God, you know what it's going to be known as? It's going to be known for 
perfect relationships with others. But let me show you something else Jesus points out. We're going to have perfect relationship with God. Look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So he says, you know, have you not read the book of Moses? And they're like, hey, those are the only five books that we read. We've dismissed all the others. He says, have you not read about the bush? Now, there were no chapters and verses in the original Hebrew text. Those were added much, much later on. So what they did is they would use a key feature to draw everyone's attention to the passage that they were talking about. And one that was commonly used was the bush. This is where God revealed his personal name. And so he said, have you not read the passage, the passage of the bush, where God says, I am, and he quotes it for him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It is the emphatic present tense. God has created a covenant relationship with these people, the patriarchs. And when they died, that didn't end the covenant. They, the covenant is so critically important that they live forever. They are existing now. In fact, they are more alive now and more experiencing the covenant realities, even though they've been dead by the time Moses wrote for about four or five centuries. And so what he's saying is, I am. He is the God who is alive, and those who know him and trust him, they are alive with him. It'd be very similar if I said, listen, I am the, fa- the friend of your father. Now, if I said that, that means what? Well, your father exists, he's alive, and I'm in relationship with him. If I said, I am the friend of your father. But if I said, I was the friend of your father. Why, that would say, well, there's either a change of relationship or your father is no longer alive. I want you to know I was the friend of your father. What does Jesus say? He says, I am. What did the Sadducees say? Well, they had kind of missed that. They referred to it as I was. He was once the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to know this one verse shows just how important every single word of Scripture is. You see, Jesus uses the tense of one verb for his whole argument. The idea that, well, the Bible, you know, just kind of, you can just paraphrase it and the words don't really matter. You just need to go to the general principles. That's not how Jesus treated the Scripture. He believed in something that is true. It's called inerrancy and the accuracy of Scripture. Every word is important. It really drives why we really want to study and know the word. And he says, you are greatly mistaken. Look at verse 27. He says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's alive, and they are alive. And this tells us that God's covenant with his people is so rooted in the character of God 
that that covenant must continue even after the earthly life of those in which he has established that covenant, that they must live forever. And that is how it worked for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, God made, him, made them promises like a land. Did they see it in their lifetime? No. Did God fail? Did he lie to them? No. Like you read in the book of Hebrews, like Hebrews chapter 11, they saw the promises of God from a distance and they welcomed them. While they were still living, they lived by faith and they were trusting in his promises and they will be fulfilled. And the only way that can happen is if indeed you are resurrected from the dead. And so the basis of our faith is what? It's the word of God and it's the power of God. And I want you to know that both the Old and the New Testament all continually show us that indeed there is a resurrection from the dead. Let me just in kind of a rapid fire fashion give you some verses on this. Like for instance, Psalm 16 verses 9 through 11. Here you have David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is writing of his hope that he will realize, but at the exact same time, he is giving a prophetic statement of what's going to take place with Jesus. But listen to what David had to say. He said, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the abode or the place of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Psalm 23. You ever read that psalm? Do you know how it ends? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Anybody know? Forever. Doesn't end. Daniel, writing in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The dividing line, whether your faith is firmly trusting in God or not. Think of Jesus and the statements that he makes. Like John 11, verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Remember in John chapter 14, verses like 1 through 3, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he tells them about what's coming. He says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Meaning, there is a bodily resurrection that requires a place, and Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he goes on to say, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is eternal. He never, he, he has, there's no ending to his existence. Where I am, you are going to be also. Well, remember, just not too long after Jesus makes that statement, there's this event where Jesus literally is on the cross. He has been crucified and he's dying. And there are two thieves on either side. And you remember that one of those thieves 
by God's just mercy, realizes that indeed Jesus is the Messiah. He has done no wrong. And he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today we're going to be in paradise. You know, like 2 Corinthians 5.8, it simply says this, I say to, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. When you pass from this life, if your faith is in Christ, body laid in the grave, but you, you're present with the Lord. You want to know how this all ends? Do you want to know what eternity is really like? Just read the end of the book. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. Let me just read this to you. You have the new heaven and the new earth. And it says, John writing, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See that? There's a bodily resurrection. He wipes away every tear from every eye. And there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. This is eternity. And the resurrection is so vitally connected to the Scripture and to the power of God. How is it that we can be alive and actually have a body that is going to be fit for eternity and forever be in his presence? It is rooted in the power of God. And so what will, what will it be like? What's the reality of life after death for those whose faith is in God? Perfect relationship with others, perfect relationship with God, and perfect life in eternity. Did you see that in verse 27? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He is the God of the living. So many people, even today, kind of think that, well, heaven is going to be somewhat kind of like life on the earth, except we're just going to be like, with God, not sure what we're going to do, but it's probably going to be much kind of the same. I heard the uh, story of two young men who were seeking to share the gospel in the Appalachians. They came across a particular, just, it was like a shack. And there was a a woman, a single mom, had a number of children. They were starving. It was super hot. Um, Not only their kids were hungry, a couple of them were fighting. She was sweating. They really had really no hope or prospects of ever doing better than they were. And these two guys were trying to share about Jesus. And And at one point, they asked her, don't you want to live forever? And she's kind of looking around in the rags that she's wearing and the kids that don't have any clothes and they're crying and they're hungry and they're all sweating. And yeah, she loved her kids, but the whole idea of living like this forever? And she said, no, (laughs) I don't want to live like this forever. Is heaven really just going to be kind of a a little bit much the same of what we're experiencing here? Absolutely not. He's the God of the living. That's, that's the problem. 
we see things from a horizontal level. We don't have the right language. We don't have the right perspective. We live in the dimensions of the here and now and what we can see. But what is to come is far greater. And this is what the Bible presents. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, like verses 35 through 57, it talks about that we have earthly bodies, but we're going to receive heavenly bodies. Like you read about in 15 verse 57, where it says the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal must but put on what? Immortality. We will be given a body like the resurrected Christ, one that will never perish, that is fit for eternity, never have a breakdown, and will be able to comprehend, realize, enjoy, and experience the immensity of God in eternity forever. Where we're going and what's going to happen to us, there is no sorrow, no suffering, no sin. I tell you, this brings great comfort because life is hard. And what happens is saints that really take God at his word and are listening to what Jesus has to say, you know what it does? It fuels our desire to be with him, to be with him in this state, to receive a glorified body that will, where Jesus has the power to take, our, take a body and conform it to his so that we will be able to live forever, that we will have a perfect love for God and for others, that we will worship God in perfection. I mean, we're, we're distracted, we're limited in our worship in this life, but to worship unhindered, undistracted, to have perfect law, knowledge. Right now, we kind of see in a mirror dimly. We just kind of partly know to have full knowledge, to see and to experience and to know the immensity of God, to know truth like we've never known it, to be perfectly motivated for service, to obey. There's going to be no sorrow, no disappointment, no discouragement, no depression, no breakdown, but perfect life, perfect life with God. And that is the glory to come. But you know the Sadducees, just like so many people, they didn't believe it. And what did Jesus tell them? <laughs> He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are greatly mistaken. You are literally greatly self-deceived. You know, it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity in our hearts. Now, you can go into denial mode and just buy into the ethos of this world, like, oh, well, it's just about what you can do here. But I want you to know that God has set eternity in the heart of humanity. And God is going to bring a fulfillment of that realization. He is going to bring heaven to those who truly are trusting in him. And so I have just a question I'd like to ask you. Will heaven be your home? Will it? Will heaven be your home? You know, you can get it right. You can actually understand like, yeah, there's, there's an eternity and there is life after death. And, and, I, and I get that but still miss it. If your faith isn't completely, solidly in Jesus Christ, if you're still kind of like holding on to self, you're still missing the mark and you won't churn and repent of your sin, I want you to know you can have good theology and miss the presence of God in eternity. It all goes back to what you're really going to do with Jesus Christ. Is it going to be his presence in heaven or will it be hell? and eternally separated from him. You know, in this room, just like in this world, there are really only two options. 
You are either deceived and greatly mistaken, and you will die in your sin, or you are greatly rejoicing because of the glorious finished work of Jesus Christ, and your faith is solidly in him. But there is no middle ground. You're either in one of those two camps. And what God does through his word and through life experiences and through the working of the Holy Spirit and true fellowship, true fellowship among the believers, it cultivates a yearning for being in God's presence and the joy of knowing that we're going to heaven and we're going to be with him. When Kern and I uh, were back in the Northwest visiting family, um, we had the opportunity of, of visiting uh, a dear friend and his wife that we went to school with, uh, Kevin Allen and Beth. I think many of you would probably remember Kevin because just a couple of years ago, he actually preached here. He's with Christianity Explored. Uh, he gave us a message on how to share the gospel with the nations. And, and Kevin has given himself to see the gospel go throughout the entire world, completely given his life to this. But lately, Kevin has been fighting for his life. Um, he has stage four pancreatic cancer. Uh, in fact, he had been in the ICU and it, it had been rough, so rough that they brought their kids in because they weren't sure he was going to make it. But Kevin got out of the ICU and just a couple days after that, Karina and I had the privilege of being able to go to their home and spend some time with him. And uh, when Kevin and I just had some time where it was just the two of us, and we were riding in the back of a car, I said, hey, how you really doing? And he said, you know, when I, when I first heard the news that I've got stage four pancreatic cancer, I passed out. This isn't the first time Kevin faced cancer. When we came out of college, he had cancer. When he was in our wedding, like he was all bald and stuff, you know, joyful, smiling, and feeling terrible. He said, well, I heard, and I knew what this meant. I passed out. But then he was telling me with all sincerity, Grant, I want God to be glorified. I want the truth of Scripture to be known. I want the hope of heaven to be realized. And he says, I am seeing this final season as my great adventure going to heaven. And he says, especially in the times where I'm suffering, Jesus and the hope of heaven it means everything to me. And I just would like to ask you, do you have the hope of heaven? Know this, your life after death is determined by where your faith rests. Don't be in the group of greatly mistaken. Be in the group of greatly rejoicing because we have a Savior who's alive He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Let's pray.